Hello, and welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here today with Dr. Marisa Randazzo, who is the Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Sigma Threat Management Associates. In this capacity, she oversees all of Sigma's threat assessment training and consulting operations, as well as strategic initiatives, providing daily management and visionary leadership to all of Sigma's work. She is recognized internationally as an expert on threat assessment and threat management, school shootings, and other types of targeted violence and protective intelligence investigations. She also serves as the Director of Threat Assessment for Georgetown University. Previously, Dr. Randazzo served for 10 years with the U.S. Secret Service, most recently as the agency's chief research psychologist. Welcome, Marisa, to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. It's great to be here, Fred. Thanks for having me. How do you see the events of January 6th at the U.S. Capitol changing the threat assessment for the upcoming inauguration? Fred, as I see it, and in talking with other threat assessment professionals in the field, this is a game changer as far as security goes. And for a number of reasons, not only is it a a game changer for physical security. Obviously, the events of January 6th demonstrated a crowd's ability to penetrate the Capitol, normally a a secure environment, and to get around the law enforcement that that were there to protect it, albeit limited law enforcement. Looking at threats to the inauguration, not only do we have a physical security challenge of making absolutely sure that wherever the president-elect is is sworn in as president, that that physical location has to be secure. But we also have a challenge as threat assessment professionals and protective intelligence professionals to look at what is the threat landscape looking like now. And since January 6th, it has changed dramatically to a level of threat that I have not seen in the course of my career so far. Yeah, the troubling part for me, having worked inaugurations and special events inside the Beltway, is that we're used to mob violence overrunning embassies overseas historically, like in Islamabad in 79 and certainly Tehran in 79 and most recently in Benghazi. But one certainly did not expect that to occur inside the Beltway at a high value target where there's so many uniformed police officers and protective agents that's uh, deployed. What do you make of that? So thinking for a second about what protective intelligence is, right? It's a process to inform protective operations. And I think what we saw was a a massive failure on January 6th of the protective intelligence capacity and then the impact on protective operations. So protective intelligence from anyone, any lay person who was reading the news, engaged on social media, especially people who were engaging in, in some of the more um, ex- extremist conversations on on different social media saw the plans for a mob, a huge crowd to come to Washington, D.C. on January 6th. And some of those individuals saw the detailed discussions around not only just marching and protesting, but going beyond that to occupying the Capitol and to 
taking back our country as these people saw it by force if necessary. We talk often when we're talking about um, international terrorism, foreign-born terrorism, about chatter. There could not have been more chatter around what groups of people were planning to do at the Capitol, inside the Capitol on January 6th, certainly than we've ever seen before. So that chatter alone should have informed protective operations in advance. Now, we know there were other failures, too, around the ability to secure resources that were needed, such as the natural, National Guard, et cetera. But looking at this, this was, this was not only a protective failure, but as I see it, a protective intelligence failure. Fred, I was just going to get back to your question, which is, so what does this mean for the inauguration? That in addition to physical security measures needing to be scrutinized, rechecked, enhanced dramatically for the swearing in and, and related events on January 20th, we need to make sure and threat assessors need to make sure that their protective intelligence and threat assessment operations receive that same sort of additional scrutiny where we're checking and rechecking cases and assessing new threats prior to January 20th as well. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, the one thing that troubles me is uh, I know from running protective intelligence operations, for example, at the Olympics in Atlanta, is that we had everything buttoned up at Georgia Tech campus, but yet we still had the bombing at Centennial Park. And I think that that's one of the challenges when you start looking at one of these large-scale special events, that there's an overwhelming number of soft targets. And so from a threat assessment perspective, how do you factor that into if you were the one tasked to write this? So here's what I'm looking at, and, and here's what, what I'm also very concerned about for January 20th and before and after, is that the softer targets we know are always easier to hit. And we know that that would-be attackers, whatever their motivation, are going to look for the easiest path forward. What we look at for a threat assessment for any big event like the inaugural or Olympics, et cetera, is not only who is talking about wanting to do harm, but who's taking it a step further, who's on that pathway to violence, who is planning to approach the event or that target, who is preparing for, who's actually gaining the, the, the weapons, the, the access. We know from FBI research that that preparation step often is very close to get engaging in that harm as well. So who right now is going beyond just rhetoric, beyond just social media talking to actually planning to be somewhere to do harm and then making it possible to do that harm, getting access to weapons, to whatever that is. And, and weapons we saw January 6th were not only what we think about with firearms, but even more so with flagpoles, with crutches. We saw people doing harm with a whole host of things that we don't often think about as weaponry but we're there with the intent to do harm with those instruments. So looking at it right now from a threat assessment angle, I'm looking at my own cases and we're assisting law enforcement as well to look at who's going beyond just saying something beyond that talk, which may actually just be bluster to actually saying, well, I've got my plane ticket or I'm driving there, or I'm meeting up with so-and-so and this is where I'm going to be. And Fred, as you were mentioning, not just for the actual event of the swearing in, the inauguration itself on January 20th, but especially looking at those softer targets. What might give be a symbolic hit that's much less likely to be protected on January 20th? You know, one of the things that I thought about in, in watching the aftermath of this, uh, Marisa, is, and I'd love your perspective on this too. I know years ago, there, there were very few players in the protective intelligence field, certainly had the Secret Service and the State Department's Diplomatic Security Service, and then the U.S. Capitol Police stood up a, a unit. But is there too much information now to make sense 
of the threat streams? There's an overwhelming amount of information now, Fred, and and the threat assessment field now with social media and with you know Twitter and and Parler and and Reddit and 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 Gab and, and all of those different channels where people are interacting, it has magnified or, or or amplified to an exponential extent beyond what it used to be in the earlier days of, of threat assessment. So there's a staggering amount of information. But on the other hand, the good news about this is that we also have a much more aware public that we have individuals who are engaging in not only the the crowdsourcing of trying to identify people who were inside the Capitol doing harm on January 6th, but people who are also now seeing what their friends and, and family are saying on social media and taking that step forward to alert the FBI, alert the Secret Service, alert local law enforcement so that they can look into it. So Yes, our volume of intelligence has increased dramatically, but but our the willingness of the public to take that step forward and say, I'm not feeling comfortable with what I'm seeing. I'm worried about this. Let me have a professional take a look at this. That is so much greater than we've ever seen before. You and I were chatting offline and you raised a a troubling aspect, you know, as a former cop and as a former agent myself, is the impact of the possible in thr- insider threat in law enforcement. What's your thoughts on that? Fred, I, there was a report that came out this summer that, that I highly recommend people read from the Brennan Center on the sort of undocumented, untold amount of white nationalist sympathizers, far-right extremist sympathizers within our law enforcement at every level, local, state, and federal. And, and I believe it's within the military as well, that there are individuals within these trusted agencies that are sympathetic these causes or maybe actively involved in extremist groups. And that is a significant problem. We talk about that as an insider threat because they are inside these trusted agencies, these agencies we entrust with the protection of our public officials and, and the protection of events and the protection of our communities. So one of the things that, that we're starting to see since January 6th is that that was, was visible in a way that we hadn't known before and hadn't had a full sense of before. We have reporting coming out from the January 6th Capitol riots that there were off-duty police officers flashing their badges at Capitol Police to be let in and saying, we're here to, to save you. That we now have seen reporting that there are law enforcement agencies around the country that are starting to identify, did they have officers from those agencies at January 6th? And if so, what disciplinary action should follow on? What investigation, what disciplinary action, if any? One of the things this Brennan Center report that was written by a, a colleague of mine, Michael German, who was a former FBI agent, has gone undercover in, in different organizations, has a phenomenal wealth of expertise looking at this problem of unidentified extremist ideology within law enforcement. One of the things that he points out in this report with the Brennan Center is that oftentimes law enforcement agencies lack policies that explicitly prohibit membership in white nationalist organizations and supremacist organizations and, and, and extremist organizations, um, that it should be a given, but, but now law enforcement may have to go back and start adopting these policies and take a look at, all right, what are these officers doing? Here's the thing of it, too. Oftentimes, this behavior, this affiliation is known within that agency, but they lack that policy to be able to discipline the behavior. So one step forward, but this is a long game, is going to be establishing those policies and then enforcing those policies to make sure officers who do have these affiliations are held accountable for that. 
Yeah, no doubt. Uh, and it's kind of a frightening aspect when you start looking at uh, just the general business of protection, whether you're protecting high value targets inside the government uh, or or uh, corporate security. And, and I know uh, uh, the author of that piece, we were on a panel together a few years back down at Texas A&M University. So he does very good work. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about OnTech's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. We are regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights, lessons learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontech.ai/center. That's ontech.ai/center. Let's talk a little bit about this recent video that surfaced on this call of action for January twentieth about how this might inspire murderers in search of a cause. What do you mean by that? Yeah, murderers in search of a cause is a phrase that came out of of some of the earliest research done by the Secret Service on assassinations and attacks on on public officials and public figures. In studying those events and studying the people who carried out these assassinations and assassination attempts, one of the things that came up with this concept that some of the individuals who went so far as to attack were murderers in search of a cause. These were people who were interested in engaging in violence and looking for some sort of cause or umbrella under which to hide their intentions. My worry that this video that we're talking about is something that started circulating on on Parler before Parler was, was shut down earlier this week. And it was a video that was highly produced, very slick, looked to me like a, a movie trailer you'd see coming out of Hollywood. Definitely affiliated with the QAnon conspiracy because the, the tagline at the end had the, the acronym that's often affiliated with that. And that um, was really designed to inspire and incite. It was a call to action in that saying January 20th begins our, our fight, essentially like what we would see coming out of, of Islamic extremists inspiring a jihad, a, a holy war. It was referencing God, have faith in God, fight till the end, fight to the death. It was one of the most disturbing calls to action videos I've seen from a terrorist or extremist example. And it was homegrown, it was absolutely domestic in nature. And had this been something coming from, from foreign nationals or, or from foreign terrorist groups, we would immediately have a, a reaction to it as a country. It's coming from inside. And, and I haven't seen the same type of alarm necessarily. But what I worry about is that that type of, of video that's now circulating on social media has the impact of inspiring someone who may be looking to do harm or who mentally may be imbalanced, that they would take that as not only permission to go forward and engage in violence, but almost an invitation, a solicitation, a request that this video is asking me to be a warrior and me to go defend the country as they see it in this very skewed and, and false view. But take it as, a, as an invitation to go forward and to sacrifice themselves and engage in massive harm. 
It is profoundly disturbing. I don't know if the video is still circulating, but I know that that video alone, as well as a lot of related chatter, is significantly changing and amplifying the threat assessment and the physical protection needs for January 20th and beyond. And we still have a pipe bomb maker that appears to be on the loose that was uh, capable of getting a couple devices uh, at the RNC and, and DNC as well. Related to that, my, my sense was that those may have been intended as diversionary devices. Um, you know, we see this in, in events. Gosh, we saw this in the, the Columbine High School shooting back in 1999, that before actually engaging in the in the school shooting, the Columbine shooters had planted IEDs several miles away from the school and detonated them in a, in a hope to distract first responders and keep them busy for their big attack when they actually launched the attack at, at their school. So I see likewise that these pipe bombs may well have been related to the January 6th attack and, and planted in, as in a diversionary devices, um, but that they were discovered before they actually detonated. So we're looking at some more things like that for, for soft targets um, beyond the, the inaugural itself. And certainly speaks to a degree of tactical coordination on the ground. I think that's such a key point, Fred. One of the things that I've seen coming out of, of the follow-on reports that we didn't know on January 6th as this was first unfolding was the level of coordination inside the Capitol with earpieces, hand signals. There were certain people there. I don't think it involved the entire crowd necessarily, but a subsection of that crowd that was there with specific plans in a highly coordinated effort. And I think those were the individuals looking in particular for the vice president, for the speaker of the house, the ones with zip cuffs, the ones that were looking for a to create potentially a hostage situation or to actually uh, engage in an assassination attempt. Marissa, usually at an inauguration, you have big business engaged. There's a lot of multinational corporations, a lot of CEOs that like to attend. I have not seen any reports on who might attend, but if you are those corporate security directors or executive protection teams that uh, are planning on going for the inauguration, what are some of the things that you would think of from a threat assessment, protective intelligence aspect? You know, I would want to be monitoring very closely any discussion on any of these chat boards, be it the more mainstream, the more fringe, regarding the company, the brand generally, that the name of the CEO, whatever officials you might have there, because certainly these are potentially attractive targets for folks who want to do harm and engage in disruption at the inaugural, that maybe you can't get close enough to actually do harm to, um, to the president-elect as, as he's being sworn in, but you could engage in some symbolic harm toward a symbol of American capitalism. And I think that that could be an attractive target. And one thing we do know about individuals and, and groups that have targeted public officials and, and public figures is that they often are prone to target switching. They'll make plans to try to harm their initial target. And if that is too difficult to, to approach, too difficult to achieve, they often look to, okay, what's a good proxy? What is easier to, to harm, easier to achieve? And, and I, I think that January 20th, for those attending the inaugural, that unfortunately it would be an abundance of potential soft targets there. Well, that's very good advice and uh, certainly eye-opening. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to say? No, I think that I do want to emphasize, as we were talking about the, the insider threat on law enforcement, you know, I, I spent my career, the first part of my career in law enforcement and the second part of my career working with and in support of law enforcement. And I know you have a, a similar experience as well. The vast, vast majority of 
individuals who work in law enforcement in whatever capacity are there for the right reasons. They are there to support the mission. They are there to to protect and to serve and to defend the Constitution. When we're talking about insiders within law enforcement, these are a few individuals, but the challenge is there are a few individuals scattered across many different agencies, and, and that's the problem we have to root out. But I don't want my comments to be misunderstood as a lack of support for law enforcement. Law enforcement professionals at every level do commendable jobs and, and sacrifice their time. Their families make similar sacrifices. They sacrifice their safety, all in support of, of protecting all of us. So the vast, vast majority are ones we don't have to con- be concerned about, but the ones whose behavior raises concern, those we need to look into, discipline, and, and then actually remove from those agencies if need be. Yeah, no doubt we need to root out those bad apples. Now, how can Sigma Threat Management Associations help companies trying to make sense of what's taking place now? So we um, we do a whole mix of threat assessment work. We work with um, high-profile individuals and, and corporations, and we work with colleges, and we work with schools, and we also work with law enforcement agencies to help them handle threatening situations, so a stalking case, a threat case. Um, and we are working with some of those clients now who are preparing, just as you were suggesting, to possibly head to, to the inaugural on January 20th. And right now, what we're actually helping them to do is helping them to inform that decision making about whether it's safe to go and if so, what they need to do to attend safely. So we look at people who've expressed a direction of interest in their CEOs before. We also, I I will say this quite selfishly, we rely heavily on Ontech's protective intelligence platform to do that work for us. It helps us to to call through the mountain of intelligence from social media and, and, and from other sources that can help us inform, do we have some known individuals that we worry about who might engage there? Do we have new chatter on various social media platforms about the CEO, about the brand, about their travel, about the, the, the desirability of those individuals or that company as a target? So we use all that information to make threat assessments and help inform the protective operations for all of those different clients. And then we also teach them how to do it themselves. As you know, threat assessment is not rocket science. Um, it's a process that is easy to use, and, and, and we help people to develop that in-house capacity as well. Well, thank you for those nice comments about the OnTick platform. We appreciate it. Dr. Marisa Randazzo is the CEO and founder of Sigma Threat Management Associates, and we thank you for being on the OnTick Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.ai/center. Again, that's ontic.ai/center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smoke Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontech.ai or visit ontech.ai slash center for more information. And thanks for listening.